Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, and you may follow on page 944 in your pew Bible. Even considering the exceptional character of the revelations, therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be be to God. Good morning, church. In addition to being Andy's husband and Brock and Parker's dad, my name is Rob Lau, and it is one of the great privileges of my life to be one of the pastors here at Ebenezer. So glad that you are with us today as we bring our Giants Will Fall series to a close. I can't begin to tell you how many tears I have shed and borne witness to throughout the course of my ministry career. How many counseling sessions I've engaged in and how many funerals I've performed because of the giant we'll be discussing today. Our conversation topic for today is how we can fall the giant of addiction. A young adult in the United States today is more likely to die from a drug overdose than they are from a motor vehicle accident. 85 to 90% of all robberies that take place in the United States take place in order to fuel an addiction of some sort. 85 to 90%. This year alone, it's projected that 88,000 people will die from complications due to alcoholism. Some of us might see this and we might say to ourselves, why? Why in the world would you let yourself get addicted to something, especially something that could kill you. And I think that's, I think that's a reasonable question to ask. But I also think there's a reasonable answer. The medical community tells us that an addicted person's brain works differently. The National Institute of Mental Health says addiction is largely a matter of brain chemistry. It's influenced chiefly by genetics and also influenced by psychological strain and life circumstances. Essentially, people who suffer with addictions seek to change how they feel, and they're willing to either use a substance or engage in an activity in order to do it. So the way it works is that I'm at work and I, I close the big deal. Or... I experienced some tragedy in my, my family or on a foreign field of war or for whatever reason I'm simply feeling numb. So, so now my, my sense is that I'm, 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 I'm really elated or I'm really dejected or I'm just bored. That experience is outside of my normal scope and I want to get back to normal so I use a drug or I take a drink or I max out my credit card or eat six Big Macs. Or I spend a lot of my life staring at my phone or my tablet. I saw a study this week that said that the average American is going to spend 49 days of 2019 looking at their phone and tablet screens. 40 
nine days. There are probably some people in this room who've had a, had a good day at work and you decided to celebrate. Maybe you decided to celebrate too much and you woke up the next morning and you felt bad or you felt bad about something you did, you felt bad about something you said and so therefore you didn't engage in that activity like that anymore. What makes addicts different is that they're either willing or in many cases feel compelled to do it again and again and again. On a physiological level, the brain of an addict functions differently than the brain of a person who's not inclined towards addiction. That's not an excuse. It's just the truth. Can addicts get better? Well, I think most people who are experts in the field would tell you that addicts are always going to be addicts, but they can begin to engage in a process of recovery. People who wrestle with the giant of addiction can choose to begin recovering just like all of us can choose to conquer the giants of fear and complacency and anger. Yeah, we can defeat our giants. Sometimes we simply choose not to. Addiction is a unique challenge. It faces some of us more uniquely than others. But I want to share a piece of it that I, I think is, is particularly interesting and I believe all of us will understand. One way we could think of addiction is that it emerges from a, a unique sense of vulnerability. I know I talk about vulnerability a lot. Maybe some of you think I talk about vulnerability too much. And when I speak about vulnerability, I tend to think, speak very positively of vulnerability. Because I believe that when we are, are willing to open up to one another, we're going to have deeper relationships. But there is a a negative valence to vulnerability as well. Here's the difference. Healthy vulnerability contributes to our well-being. As we confess our sins to God, as we share the mistakes and challenges with others, it increases our well-being. Vulnerability becomes unhealthy when we internalize it. Instead of sharing our challenges, we hide them. And we begin to walk through life with all of these hidden fears and regrets and it becomes too much and I start to turn to something that can make me feel better if only for a moment. Addictions are a tremendously threatening giant. They are threatening the lives of people in this room. They're threatening the lives of people in our families and church. This has been a giant that in recent years has come on as a significant challenge to our entire society. So I want to spend the rest of our time talking about some spiritual principles that can help us lay this giant of addiction to waste. One tactic that we could use to overcome addiction is called transference. Transference, transferring one addiction for another. We see this sometimes in people who quit smoking and gain a little weight. What happens? They transferred their addiction. They transferred an oral addiction to nicotine for an oral addiction to food transference. Hang on to that idea for a second because I want to share something with you that you've probably never considered. You know, there is actually one significant benefit to our human susceptibility to addiction. Addiction reminds us that we are dependent creatures. Sin can make us feel independent. The shadow side of independence is isolation. Our sinful, insecure sides tell us that we have to be self-sufficient, but that's a myth. None of us are fully independent. 
So if I'm inclined to trade one addiction for another, how about transferring it to something we all need to thrive? If I'm going to be addicted to something, how about grace? Become addicted to grace. I know. You're saying, Pastor, that sounds kind of weird. I understand. But do you remember the first time you experienced the grace of God? Those of us who claim Christ as our Lord and Savior. Maybe maybe you knelt at an altar. Maybe it was a youth camp. I don't know. But do you, do you remember that feeling as a lifetime's worth of mistakes and failures were lifted away? That feeling of freedom? It's euphoric. Grace is an unbelievable and unbelievably healthy feeling. But, of course, there is a catch to grace. If I'm going to claim to live by grace, I have to be willing to give up the illusion that I'm righteous. If I'm going to be willing, if I'm going to want to live by grace, I've got to be willing to give up the illusion that I'm righteous. And this can be really hard for some Christians because somewhere along the way, somebody told us that in order to be a Christian, we have to be more righteous than other people. If you'll recall, one of pastor's favorite analogies is to talk about that there were some people in the New Testament who considered themselves very righteous, the Pharisees, and Jesus wanted very little to do with them. The difference between the Christian and the non-Christian isn't that one is righteous and the other is not. The difference is that as Christians, we know we're not righteous. We know of our utter and complete dependence on grace. And there's a humility that comes with our acceptance of grace. Overcoming our addictions begins with a recognition that we need help. So, what if we were to trade our ways of dealing with our addictions What if we were to trade the ways that we deal with, the ways that are killing us for the method that God has in mind, a method that gives us life? But to do that, we have to be willing to admit we need help. That rather than being a superhero, I'm actually an utterly dependent creature, not on sex or or drugs or affirmation of other people, Instead, I'm utterly dependent on grace. I love the way that it talks about it in our scripture today. Paul says, or Paul hears God say, my grace is sufficient for you. Um, sometimes I think that word sufficient is conveyed to us when God says, my grace is sufficient for you, is that we just say, oh, that great, it's, it's, it's enough. It'll, it'll eke out a victory, right? But, but the word for grace, the word for sufficiency, rather, in, in Greek is the word archaeo. When God says, my grace is sufficient for you, it's, my grace is archaeo for you. What does that mean? Archaeo means strong enough to overcome any challenge you will face. That's what it means. My grace is strong enough to overcome any challenge, any challenge that you will face. My grace is able to protect you against anything. We are going to be dependent creatures. We are going to depend on something. Why not be addicted to grace? Let's talk about a second tool that slays addiction. 
You know what I think the most painful moment in the Bible was? A lot of people would say, oh, it must have been the crucifixion. And maybe you're right. But it's my opinion that the most painful moment in the Bible actually came the night before the cross. You, you may remember that Jesus had been taken into to captivity. He was, he was being held uh, that night by, by the Sanhedrin. And he was, he was in a house. He was being questioned by the Jewish religious leaders. And outside of that venue was a courtyard where arguably Jesus' best friend, Peter, was standing. And the Bible tells us that three different times people walked up to him and said, Hey, Peter, aren't you, uh, aren't you a friend with this guy over here who's getting questioned? And Peter said, Oh, no, no, not me. As if to add insult to injury, the last person who asked him, Hey, don't you know this Jesus guy? The Bible tells us was a little girl. Peter comes to the Greek word Petra, it means rock. A little girl said, hey, do you know that? Peter was so afraid. He said, no, not me. Next week, we're starting a sermon series about Peter. It's called Flawed But Faithful. Helping us to recognize that God uses exclusively flawed people to build the kingdom. Here's what I want us to take away from that experience with Peter, though. The most painful reality of our salvation isn't that Jesus went to the cross, it's that he went alone. He felt profoundly alone when he went to the cross. So often when we talk about the cross, we talk about the fact that on the cross Jesus overcame our sin, and that's true. He set us free from sin. We talk about the fact that on the cross Jesus overcame the consequences of sin, and that's true. He sets us free from the consequences. But have you ever thought about the fact that on the cross... Jesus was lonely to set us free from our loneliness. We can defeat our addictions, but I don't think we're likely to do it alone. So here's the second tool. We need to remember that as Christians, we fight in packs. Jesus died alone so we could live together. Did you hear that? Jesus died alone so we could live together. He gave us each other. Remember the story in, in John chapter 11 of Lazarus? That's uh, one of the greatest stories in the Bible, one of the most important stories in the Gospels. In this story, Jesus is, has a friend, Lazarus. He lives in the town of Bethany, and Jesus is off somewhere else. And, and Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, send a note to him and said, Hey, Lazarus is sick. Can you come and help us? And Jesus doesn't do anything. For four days, he doesn't do anything. And finally, he shows up. In Bethany, and everybody's asking, where have you been? Where have you been? Sometimes we say that to God after a tragedy in our lives. God, where have you been? Where have you been? The Bible tells us that Jesus communicated with Mary, and he talked to Martha, and he wept with the people who were weeping, and then he went to the tomb. And he commanded the people to roll back the stone. And the people argued with him. They said, well, we live in a desert, and he's been dead for four days. My favorite is the King James Version, which said, Lord, he stinketh. Jesus said, roll back the stone. He prayed to heaven. And then he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man came out. That's the crescendo of the story. But I want to point out the next line in the Bible. Because here's what it says. Jesus looks at the people. He said, unbind him. And let him go. 
Unbind him and let him go. Who was given the commandment to unbind Lazarus? His family, his friends, his community. Jesus is the one who did the work of giving Lazarus life. But then he charged the people around Lazarus with unbinding the man. Have we ever thought about the fact that one of our calls as people who live together in Christian community is that God calls us to help unbind one another? We need grace. And we need each other. Over the course of the last few weeks during this series, we've been engaged in an exercise here at Ebenezer Church. And we've invited people to uh, fill out um, uh, a a list of of giants. And and tell us, what are some of the giants that you have faced in the course of, of your life? We had 400 people respond to this exercise, which represents about a third of our average worship population when you factor in our four worship services and our online worship experience. So we have 400 people, or a third of our congregation participants, I'm just curious, how many people do we have in the room today? 202, that makes math easy. Hallelujah, thank you, Lord. All right, so with the people on this side, these three sections, would you do me a favor for just a second? Would you mind standing up for just a second for me as you are able? And keep standing for just a second. Okay, so one-third of our congregation took this survey. And of those one-third people, of those 400 people, 50% of them, those folks... Maybe not you specifically, but that many people right there. That's how many people said they wrestle with anxiety. That's it. Okay, you guys can have a seat. All right. Now you guys, slightly less populated on this side, so I'm going to use you for this one. So uh, I want to invite this group, this, these three rows, as you're able, would you stand up for just a moment for me? Okay, so again, acknowledging that only a third of our congregation ended up participating in this exercise. But of those 400 people, 47%—47% said that they had wrestled with depression. That's crazy. It's amazing. It's amazing that that number of of people have actually had that that kind of experience. And that's only a third of the people in our congregation who are willing to respond to it. Thank you very much. You guys can have a seat. All right. I got to do one more here. So let's say 40% of 400 is 180 people. All right. Actually, I've been doing this all wrong. I should have had everybody stand up for the last two, but that's okay. I, I do need everybody except these two sections. Would all of you, the rest of you stand for just a second? One, last time, I promise, last time. Here's the deal. Over 40% of the people who took the survey said they have a negative image of themselves. Look around. Look around. That's only, that's only a third of our congregation that actually took the survey. That's how many people in our church. You know why we end every single worship service? Why I end every single worship service? By reminding you that you are the beautiful and beloved children of God is because sometimes we need to be reminded of who we are. And listen, I'm, that's, that doesn't mean we are, we are ignoring the realities of our lives. I'm your pastor. I need to lose a few pounds. I know that. My wife got me a gym membership. Hallelujah. <laughs> Here's what I'm saying. We might be a few pounds too heavy. We may not look as young as we once did, but that does not change the fact that you are the beautiful and beloved children of God. And sometimes we need to remind each other of who we are. Otherwise, we start telling ourselves lies about ourselves. It's important. Please have a seat. Thank you. 
Over 20% of the people who responded to the survey, over 20% of the people who responded to the survey told us that they had hidden the giants that they were facing and that they felt like they were alone as they faced them. Our tendency is to believe we're alone in our struggles, but we're not. Church, we face similar giants. And we share together in defeating our giants if we are willing to fight in packs. But again, it requires the humility of saying to somebody else, I have a problem and I need your help. Like Lazarus, Jesus has given us life. And then he gave us the people around us to help unbind us. Let me unabashedly plug small groups for a minute. If you're not in a small group, I encourage you heartily to get in one. It doesn't have to be here at Ebenezer, though we've got almost 100 to choose from. I mean, I feel like you should be here at Ebenezer, but you do where you want. Listen, get in a group of people that you trust. Share your vulnerabilities. Talk to them about the things that worry you and that you're afraid of and find that you're going to walk out stronger. That's why AA works. People come together, they share their weakness and then they become stronger together. And this brings us perfectly to the third tactic we can employ to defeat the giant of addiction and it comes directly from our passage today in Corinthians. Paul was facing a giant. We don't know exactly what it was. We just know he couldn't defeat it alone. He prayed and he prayed for God to take this giant away from him. And God said no. God said instead, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast, says Paul, so I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. That's the third tool. That's it. In this upside-down kingdom of God, when I am weak, then I am strong. And listen, we know this is true. We know it's true. We know this. We've all heard it in leadership seminars in the last 20 years. We learn more from failure than we do from success. We learn more from losing than we do from winning. It just took everybody else 2,000 years to catch up to what the Bible has been saying all along. That there is freedom and power in the acknowledgement of our weakness because it requires us to depend on a greater power, the power of the living God. You know all three of these steps to help conquer the giant of addiction? You know what all three of them have in common? The common denominator amongst all these? Each one of them requires humility. It requires humility to admit our dependence on grace. Requires humility to admit that we need each other. Requires humility to admit that we are weak and ironically then to find strength. We can defeat our addictions. We can defeat our giants if we're humble enough to ask for help. 
So I write sermons on Monday mornings, uh, or I start writing sermons on Monday mornings. We, we project out about a year in advance what, what we're going to be talking about in a worship service, but it's really the, the work of writing a sermon starts on Monday morning. And Sunday, so Monday morning I'm praying and I'm, I'm, I'm dreaming and I'm reading and, and the, I feel like the Holy Spirit put a, put a song in me. And I'm not going to sing it to you so you can rest easy, church. It's by a guy named Rich Mullins and it's called Hard to Get. And particularly there's the third verse that's been running through my, my mind. I just, I, I need to share that with you. It says this. It says, do you who live in eternity hear the prayers of those of us who live in time? We can't see what's ahead and we cannot get free from what we've left behind. I'm reeling from these voices that keep screaming in my ears. All these words of shame and doubt, blame and regret. I can't see how you're leading me unless you've led me here to where I'm lost enough to let myself be led. My friends, there are people in this room who are facing real deal giants. Carrying that giant on your back for so long We could feel lost and perhaps God has allowed us to feel lost to the point that we are finally willing to let ourselves be led. The way to give, the way to find victory over our giants is to give them away. God, I can't save my marriage by myself. I can't arrest the decline of the global church by myself. That's mine, by the way. can't put down that bottle i can't give up the desire for approval i've tried i've tried i've tried and i'm exhausted we started this giants will fall series by talking about the story of david and goliath and i conveyed that i think one of the things that is is communicated in that story is that god invites us to give great effort God invites us to be willing to try new things, new tactics. I believe that. And I believe that when we work hard and when we try new things, giants will fall around us. But I also believe that there are some giants that only God can bring down. And there are some people in this room who have been fighting our giants, trying with everything we've got for a long time and we're exhausted. But that giant just keeps suiting up. So this week I put kneeling pads all around the stage. I want to end worship. I want to end this Giants Will Fall series by giving you a chance to invite somebody else to fight for you. To give your giant away. To say to God, I can't do it alone. I need you. In just a moment, I'm going to invite you to come down and, and pray here and give those giants to God. But you need to know, if you're, if you're willing to do that, that there's somebody in the church that might look at you and say, uh-oh, that person has a problem. Guess what? So do they. So do they. We all do. We all face giants. I think one question we have to ask ourselves is how long am I going to fight the giant alone? 
And is today the day I'm willing to give that fight over to the one who most assuredly is going to win it? We are people in need. We need grace. We need each other. We need the strength of God. Please, friends, please do not leave this room today with your giant still weighing you down. Would you pray with me? God, we can't do it. We can't do it alone. We have tried. We have tried. Because we're, we're a high-functioning people here at Ebenezer, God. But it seems like that giant just keeps coming back and it's stronger and it's stronger and it's stronger. We're not afraid to work hard. We're not afraid to try new things. But there are some giants only you can bring down. And so today, we offer those giants to you. We ask that your all-sufficient grace, that grace that is more powerful than anything that could stand against us, would be showered down across us and through us and in us. Help us to remember, O God, that we are a people in need, in need of your grace, in need of each other, and in need of the humility to admit that we are weak and find to our utter astonishment that in our weakness we become strong. God, I pray that you would not allow a single soul to walk out of this room holding on to their giant today. That today will be the day that giants will fall. In the name and to the glory of Jesus we pray. Amen.